Welcome to another episode of the Zealous Podcast. I'm your host, Rocky Snyder. Be sure to follow us on Instagram so you can get little clips of the shows. That's at Rocky underscore Snyder for Instagram. This week, I have Sudeep Bhagwi, the physical performance coach with the Seattle Sounders. He's really working with developing the young athletes in hopes that they will reach the MLS level. I hope you enjoy the show. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episode that we put out every week on Mondays at 6 a.m. Pacific, 9 a.m. Eastern. So, Sudi, thanks for being on. First of all, I, I'm really excited to, to talk about all things soccer and all things strength conditioning, but I'd love to hear what your path has been like. Like, where did you start off? Where did you go to? And, and where are you now? Yeah, um, so it's been of a kind of a winding-ish path over the past few years. Um, the first thing I would say is anything that I am right now is is a direct result of the the input and sort of the work that my mentors have put into me. So like I wouldn't be anything without them. Um, but I kind of ended up, so I started off and I was undergrad at UF and I, just like anybody in an APK major uh, or applied physiology major, I wanted to go into physical therapy or some sort of pre-professional school, but I didn't really uh, know for sure if that's what I wanted. I felt like that was what I wanted to do because a lot of other people were doing it. So I was doing a lot of PT volunteer hours. And at the time I was like, okay, I'm set on doing this. I think I'm going to do this. Uh, 2017 rolls around. It's my last year. And I think to myself, well, I want to work in sports physical therapy, but I already have a lot of hours in PT in terms of volunteering. And as an undergrad, they're not going to let me do anything more in a clinic uh, if I do my last semester internship, uh, most programs generally have an internship at the end of their, their program requirements, uh, just to kind of like top off whatever you learned in a practical setting. So I thought, um, you know, most clinics are not really going to use a volunteer intern at an undergrad level at a very, very high level. So I thought there's other ways that I can make myself set apart uh, for PT school application, uh, especially if I want to go into sports. So I thought, okay, let me try to find a strength conditioning internship. So maybe I can learn a little bit more carried into PT. Uh, so I applied to uh, University of Florida strength conditioning internship, met Matt Delancey. Um, he accepted me. And from then on, it just kept going, to be completely honest. Uh, I went in and uh, I was like, wow, this is fantastic. And Matt, Matt really tested me. He taught me a lot of stuff. Um, both, you know, in terms of strength and conditioning and outside of it. Um, so I'm forever indebted to him for giving that me that first opportunity. But, you know, once I was there, um, I was like, wow, this is really fun. Maybe I can do a, you know, another internship and try to learn a little bit more before I go to PT school. And then I just kept pushing it back and back and back. So after UF, I went to the NSCA world headquarters to uh, do an internship with Scott Caulfield which again was a fantastic experience. Um, I learned a lot about working with tactical population. Um, I, did, I started working with hockey a little bit, which was a really cool experience. I really enjoyed that. Was this uh, in Colorado Springs or where were Colorado you? Colorado Springs, yes. Colorado Springs, all right. Yes. Um, so that was, that was also a great experience, just learning from Scott Caulfield, um, a brilliant coach, a brilliant mentor. Um, and then following that, I thought, okay, I still want to keep learning more. Um, but I still had this in my the back of my mind, you know, sort of a PT sort of, desire slash need. And so I thought, okay, where am I going to learn about strength conditioning, but also have a little bit of that sort of uh, knowledge or sort of the interplay between the two infused. Um, and the one person, I guess, or internship experience that I was looking for that really, really stood out to me was Cressy Sports Performance. And so I applied to that one. 
Um, they were for, I was fortunate enough to get it with them. I was really glad they gave me that opportunity because uh, the Cressy Sports Performance Internship, especially with John O'Neill at Massachusetts, was one of the best educational experiences of my life. Uh, not only a fantastic mentor, but um, obviously, you know, Eric Cressy is phenomenal. Everybody knows that. But I think one thing that uh, is really underrated about him and that people don't really uh, get about him is that he also hires brilliant coaches. Um, and so I learned so much from the coaches that I was with when I was at Cressy Sports Performance. Uh, not just about baseball, but just about movement training, but then also even more than any of that, um, I learned, I think I learned how to coach there. Before that, I learned about coaching in terms of, um, you know, being able to tell people, you know, giving them a specific cue and saying, okay, you're going to do it this way. What with Cressy, I got to work with a whole bunch of different people in a different population. And I learned uh, kind of what a good coach was. And I it sort of started to define in a technical aspect, at least, maybe not in a relational aspect, more in a technical aspect, is to get someone to do what you want to do, that's good coaching, right? And you have to connect with them on, you know, on a relational basis, but then also you have to understand what, uh, what goes through their mind. So for example, if I, uh, you know, if I tell you to tighten your core, that may not mean anything to probably 80% of the population, because 80% of the population may not be training at a level that you and I as professionals are training at. Um, but if I give them a specific cue that they can relate to, and that may not be the same for me as it is for you or for a baseball player as it is for a softball player or even between two baseball players because they grew up differently. Um, and it's trying to find what works for that individual to get them essentially to do what you want them to do. Um, and I think that is a concept that transcends all of coaching, whether it's strength conditioning, sport coaching, or even just mentorship um, outside of a competitive environment. Um, so once I finished at Cressy, um, I realized I had to go back to grad school if I wanted to continue to work in strength conditioning. Um, and at that point, I kind of just realized, okay, I think I want to put the PT thing off the, off the side a little bit. You know, Maybe I will one day go back, but I think I'm doing decently enough in strength conditioning to keep going and see where it takes me. How long was your time at Cressy? How, how long were you there with them? That was five months, January nice. to May. Yeah. Oh, so, was, so you got to experience winter in Massachusetts. How was that? That was uh, quite an experience. So I had, when I say I had snow up to my waist a few night, a few days, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing like feeling the moisture inside your nostrils freeze and yes. hear the ice crystals crinkle, right? That, when you I, just wriggle your you, nose. You described my very first day up in Massachusetts, <laughs> <laughs> especially oh, from Florida. <laughs> I was wondering about that when you mentioned your work with Eric. So, yep. oh, that's because I, I, I grew up, that was my youth, not far away from there in Massachusetts. So I get it. I get it. Okay. So you, you leave Cressy Performance and you're off to where? So I left Cressy and I realized I need a master's degree if I want, want to work in college or professional sports, which it, it ended up being what I wanted to do. So I was like, okay, I need a master's degree. And to be quite frank, I, I had a few GA opportunities, but to be quite frank, the reason I went back to University of Florida is this is the cheapest location. <laughs> um, and when you get a cut, when you got to spend money for college education, especially for grad school, uh, you know, I think it would be uh, at least an intelligent decision to make sure that you are spending the least amount of money to do so. So uh, when I went, I went back to UF and I got, you know, when I went back for grad school, again, good education, um, went back to help 
Matt Delancey, and as well as Karen Worth in, in the strength conditioning department. And Karen worked with women's soccer there, and she knew that I really enjoyed soccer. Uh, so I asked her if I could, you know, really concentrate a lot of my my efforts to help them with soccer. And, and fortunately enough, um, the year, the summer after I returned, so you, summer, semester, and then another summer, so the second summer, um, you know, University of Florida started using a uh, GPS system. And at the time, um, they didn't really, uh, not that anybody hadn't used a GPS system before, but they didn't have someone dedicated to using that. Um, and again, not that I was an expert at it because at the time I wasn't, still don't consider myself, but I know a little bit more now than I did back then. Um, I had done a little bit of research just on my own, just to like learn a little bit about how other people were using GPS, um, workload management. Um, I had gone to Tim Gabbett's uh, Q Chronic Workload um, Management Workshop and I met Tim, kind of talked to him about it. I had also gone um, literally that summer to the Seattle Sounders Sports Science Conference. Um, I had known Sean Muldoon for a little bit. And so, um, you know, I asked him if I could go and he, he gave me an invitation. Uh, so that was a good experience just to like learn from other people in MLS, but then also college soccer, how they use it. So when I came back, I was like, hey, can I help you, you know, work with this and really kind of just make this sort of a project. So, um, you know, early on, Karen gave me a lot of leeway in how I did that. She fully trusted me, which was, which was really, I really appreciate that. And then, you know, I started to build the trust with the coaches a little bit more. Um, the one thing I learned about workload management, um, the interesting thing is like, when you have good coaches, they kind of already know how to do this intuitively. Um, and so I would look at the data and early on, you don't necessarily want to change a lot of things because you don't really know what to change. So I didn't, I just collected the information, looked at it. Um, and then I tried to see if there was some sort of logical progression and the coaches actually, for the most part, did a really, really good job. Um, and I thought, you know, there really isn't much we can change. We can talk about different things, small nuances here and there, maybe a certain player is feeling a certain thing and we can change something for her. But overall, like, um, you know, they already did such a good job. We didn't have to tweak very much except for a few small things. Um, but it was just a really good experience overall to get to work with that, uh, especially as that was my first experience. Um, so then after Florida, um, I thought, uh, well, while I was at Florida, I thought, okay, I need to, you know, I had two, two things on mine. Either I had to get a full-time uh, full paid position because I'm finishing up grad school, um, or I can find or and I can find a way to break into major league soccer. Um, Cause that at the time was my ultimate goal. Um, it, was. And, it was, was that because you played as a youth? Were you a- Yeah, I guess I didn't cover that. So, uh, so yeah, I played uh, soccer. I started like when I was 11 years old and I just fell in love with the game. Um, I, I honestly actually hated the sport before the age of 11 because my dad would make me play and I never wanted to do anything my dad wanted me to do um, as a rebellious youth. But one day I was sitting, uh, or my dad actually was sitting and watching the World Cup in 2006. And uh, I was like super patriotic as a little kid. Uh, so he was watching the USA match. I was like, oh, great. Let me watch the USA match. Um, and so I just fell in love with the game after that and literally probably played every single day uh, from the age of 11 to like the age of 18. So I really enjoy the sport. Um, and that's kind of how I ended up, you know, you know, falling into the sport. Um, never really played, you know, at a higher level besides high school sort of adult league, but it's still, it was still just a huge passion of mine. I'm still a huge fan of the sport. Obviously I work for a soccer club now, but yeah. Um, but uh, after sort of grad school, I, okay. I was like, okay, what am I, 
what are my options? It's really hard when you're in professional sports to break into that league unless you know somebody. And so I thought I have to find a way to know somebody because yeah, you have to be, you have to have high quality in terms of the work that you do. But if nobody knows about that work, then there's no way you're going to get that opportunity. And fortunately enough, um, I think it was in October of that year, 2019, that uh, there was this fellowship that came up with Sporting Kansas City. And I decided, okay, I'll apply to that. Um, you know, it, it's still kind of a internship slash fellowship experience, but at least it breaks me in with a club. Um, again, had my interview with Joey Hardy and Mike Steidel. Um, and again, that went really well. And again, they gave me the opportunity to come in and help their club. Uh, and that was a great experience. So uh, my role there was basically to help everybody. So primarily I helped the academy strength coach and the second team strength coach. Um, so I would, I basically worked with anybody from the U12s all the way up to the second division professional soccer team on, on any given day. Uh, and again, it was just in a great experience to understand how MLS organizations work, um, how the performance coach does his job and works with the sport coach and planning practices, and then how we can fit in sort of ways to develop the athletes as athletes themselves while still also keeping the focus on the bigger picture is that they're trying to either get a college soccer scholarship or make it professionally. Um, uh, after that, obviously COVID hit 2020. Uh, yeah. And so that, that kind of like shut, obviously shut everything down. Um, so I, again, started looking for a full-time position um, had a few different opportunities, but then army provided me an opportunity to work with women's soccer so I thought, okay, like this is, this is a decent opportunity, partially because um, I had a few opportunities at some normal schools, like, you know, different SEC schools, but I thought, you know, Army is different. Um, it's, it's got this sort of aspect yet, yeah, you know, I'm still working with soccer, um, but I also have to account for some other things. After doing a little bit of research, I kind of learned about some of the things that the athletes do at army as well as just any normal cadet does at army and so well, you had you also had your background of tactical strength conditioning a little bit with the nsca headquarters there so uh, that sure. makes complete sense i'm just curious though how did you find out about west point was there like some job board or how, uh, how do you yeah that i mean as you may know and as i'm sure some of your listeners know if they're applying to jobs of strength conditioning you you kind of have to apply to a lot of different things especially on your first time try uh, to get it. So frankly, I saw it on these, I think I saw it on the CSCCA job board. Uh, and I was like, all right, well, full-time position, it says, uh, sports science. So I'm imagining it has something to do with either soccer or basketball. One of the sports, at least that uses that stuff in college athletics more, uh, strongly. So I applied, they told me it was a soccer job. So I was like, all right, let's keep going. Um, so I kept going and going and going. And again, Swanson, Scott Swanson provided me an opportunity to, to work with, uh, his athletes. And I was like, great, this is, uh, fantastic. So that was, that was how I ended up full-time, uh, at West Point. Um, and then that to, to be honest, that was one of the biggest learning experiences of my life in terms of having sort of my ideas of one load management, but then also strength conditioning kind of changed a little bit. Um, how so, what do you mean? It was a, it was a situation where, um, I guess a, a good practical example is, is this. So I went in there saying, okay, there's certain ways to do things based on a lot of the experiences that I have, as well as the advice that I was given to my, by my mentors and things that I'd seen work as well as 
uh, a lot of stuff based on research, right? And I went in, so an example would be, uh, let's say someone is experiencing extension-based low back pain. Um, it's a common issue in, um, you know, tackle populations. It's a common issue in different sports, whatever. So I had a few athletes that were experiencing a good number, actually. When I came in, they were telling me they were experiencing low back pain. And it always happened when they extended their low back. I was like, okay, let's do, instead of a back squat that'll load your spine, let's do a trap bar deadlift. And I thought also to myself, well, trap bar deadlift is in the ACFT. So this is great experience for them. Uh, that was actually a terrible decision. <laughs> so the way I teach uh, trap bar deadlift is I teach it sort of in a vertical pattern as a squat. Um, not necessarily to say that a hinge pattern is, or a dominant hinge pattern is wrong. It's just, if I was to apply that, if I was to teach, or sorry, if I was to prescribe a hinge type of trap bar deadlift, I might as well give them a barbell RDL. It's basically the same movement. I'm just using a different implement. So the reason I teach it as a vertical sort of squat type pattern is to limit the range of motion a little bit. So if they have limitations in range of motion that they can't reach in a back squat, you know, I can still you know, get sort of a vertical force production pattern while, you know, staying out of range of motion that may be troublesome for some people. Okay, so let's try that. Terrible idea, as I said, because a lot of these athletes had been predisposed to sort of an extension-based pattern, no matter what movement they did. So I was like, okay, well, let me try to coach them out of it. And I used every trick in the book, every trick that I learned that I just said, you know, I learned at Cressy, I learned it with Matt Delancey with um, his corrective exercise stuff, everything, nothing worked, still back pain. Okay, so what am I going to do? Well, some of these athletes are asking me to back squat. What if I just give them a back squat? All right, so I gave them a back squat, no pain whatsoever. And I was like, wow, this is very fascinating. Some people that I thought after years of experience, research, mentorship, that would be terrible candidates for back squatting. Extreme uh, extensor-based uh, low back pain, um, just all these other issues. Actually, they were great candidates for back squatting. And so I thought, wow, that's, you know, this is where, this is a situation where, you know, I may leave West Point and, you know, what I had learned previously may come completely back into effect but this sort of population, they're used to certain things and uh, they built this tolerance to certain things. And I think just that plays into a lot of what we think about training. And I think sometimes, you know, I think of myself as one of the most technical coaches and sometimes my predispositions, you know, are just wrong. And I, I need to accept that and learn from my athletes as well. So um, kind of things like that, in terms of that, in terms of workload management, in terms of honestly, the resilience, because a lot of these kids did so much other stuff besides just playing soccer and lifting weights. And I was really impressed and, uh, you know, interested to see how they were able to manage all of that while still, you know, providing a product in terms of um, training and then in terms of competing. So that was, you know, a fantastic experience again there, uh, just learning from all the athletes, learning from all the coaches and stuff there. Um, yeah. Now you also mentioned ACFT, which I don't know if the listening audience knows what that, that's about, but as a strength conditioning coach at West Point, you've got more than sports specific conditioning and, and periodization uh, of soccer to consider. What do these cadets, which or students, however you'd like to label them, what else do they have to be contending with? 
Yeah, um, that's a great, great question. So uh, there's a few different things. So every person in the army, I'm sure most people in the audience at least have some idea of when you're in the army, you have to do some sort of fitness test. So the fitness test used to be uh, sit-ups, push-ups, and a two-mile run, and then maybe like one other thing. They revised the fitness test in recent years to make it a little bit more, uh, I hate to use the word functional, but it's a little bit more specific to uh, targeting uh, other aspects of uh, physiology rather than just endurance, which is basically what a bunch of sit-ups, push-ups, and two-mile run is. So there still is a two-mile run, but then there's also the trap bar deadlift to measure strength. There's an overhead med ball toss for power. Uh, there's a sled drag slash carry, I believe. Um, and then there's one other test, which I'm forgetting right now. Uh, I think there's a core assessment test it used to be the leg tucks, but now it's sort of a plank slash leg tuck uh, combination. So basically it just measures um, and ranks people based on different aspects of fitness rather than just endurance. Um, so the cadets have to be ready for that. Uh, when they enter the army. So they take it periodically during their time at West Point so they can continue to improve their scores so that when they're in the army, they can be ready for it. So generally speaking, they'll take it uh, at the bookends of either semester. So either at the start of the semester or at the end of the semester. Um, and with an athlete, if an NCAA athlete, it kind of depends on when their championship season is. So certain teams may choose to just do it at the beginning of their season so they don't have to worry about it at the end of the season. Um, or they may just do it at the be at the end of their championship season, so they have a few weeks to prepare after they finish uh, their conference tournament, um, and then just go into it, complete it, then they have their non-championship season. So it kind of just depends on the team, but generally it's one to three times a year. So how and did that affect you with your program design for these soccer athletes that had to go and do something else? I mean, because typically you are training for specificity right. of, of events. And now you've got two that aren't necessarily similar. For sure. So um, to me, uh, we'll kind of going back on terms of the specificity. I am training in terms of specificity, but at the same time, I'm not. Uh, in terms of my the way I think of training and development, especially for younger athletes, uh, I, think, I think at times we overuse the word specificity. Any, anything that I do in training if I'm not using a soccer ball, and if honestly, if I'm not playing 11 v 11 soccer, it's not really specific to what I'm trying to get on the field. And I think in training in general, uh, specificity is over, uh, not necessarily overused, but like people dive a little bit too deeply in the sense of that they, everything has to be specific to training. Because if you really think about training, you don't wanna be specific, anything, anything, whether it's sport practice or strength conditioning practice, anything we do is non-specific to the actual game, unless you are playing the actual game. So an example would be, let's say a soccer coach is wants to prepare his, his team for a match on Saturday. At some point in the week, there's going to be some sort of small-sided game. Now, if you really think about a small-sided game, it isn't specific to 11v11 soccer. 3v3 soccer is nothing like 11v11. The physical requirements are different. The tactical, technical requirements are different. It's a completely different game. However, you get certain parts of 11v11 in 3v3 to elicit a certain effect. So the certain effect is maybe physically I'm trying to get um, a little bit more uh, muscular power, muscular endurance, changes of direction, acceleration, deceleration, whatever. Um, the tactical, technical effects, maybe now I'm trying to help the athlete 
improve their ability in 1v1. Okay, so you're, you're extracting a part of a whole to get a certain effect so that eventually it transfers into what you want to achieve in the big picture. And I think of uh, sort of strength conditioning in the same way. Um, so kind of addressing that in terms of specificity. Now with the ACFT, the way they revised it, I, in my opinion, every human being should be able to do it after a certain period of training and do well, and especially any NCAA athlete. So for me, it was kind of a creating an expectation for a lot of these athletes that, look, we're going to trap our deadlift in training, whether it was in your ACFT or not, because it's a, it's an effective movement. Now, if it wasn't in their ACFT and I had a situation, let's say an athlete did better with their back for back squat than trap bar deadlift, I would probably back squat them. But again, because it is a part of their ACFT, it's an important component in your training program because you have to be ready. Now, there are certain sort of requirements. So let, let's say, uh, I believe for, for, for men, if you get 340 on your trap bar deadlift, you get the maximum number of points. So each uh, sort of grade has a number of points that you could be assigned. So uh, it was never, it was always an expectation for the athletes that I worked it with. If you're not maxing out, your goal is not to max out your points. So an example would be if an athlete can only trap bar deadlift 200 and the maximum is 340 pounds to get the maximum number of points, there's no shot for you to get 340 pounds in six weeks. So that's not what we're trying to do because over the course of the West Point cadets career, you still have eight to 10 more attempts at the ACFT. And the goal is by the time you enter the army, you're at your highest point. It's not to be at your highest point in six weeks. And that was a very important point to make to some of these athletes because one, obviously they're young and they wanna, they wanna strive to be better. And they're also very high achieving. They come from high achieving academic and athletic backgrounds. So they wanna be really successful at everything that they do. Um, but the other thing is they look at a lot of other people because they take the ACFT altogether, you know, with large groups of people. So they see like, oh, look, this football player is trap bar deadlifting, you know, 300 pounds so easily. I have to do that too. And it's like, no, you don't have to do that. I'm not saying you can't trap bar deadlift 300 pounds. You absolutely can, but we need to train up to it. If you haven't done it before, it makes no sense to do that, to make a hundred pound jump in your training now. Um, so, I, you know, that was kind of important to break through to these athletes. Um, in terms of sort of the overall planning training process, the movements um, were kind of filtered into the training program little by little. So if there were movements that I considered staples uh, that allowed them to achieve certain training effects more effectively, they would probably be in the training program more frequently. So an example would be trap bar deadlift was in the training program a lot more frequently than maybe like a two mile run. Um, because a lot of their conditioning already came from soccer and practice. Sure. So I didn't really need to train that directly. Um, but, uh, or for example, like push-ups, push-ups, you know, weighted push-ups, eccentric, all that kind of stuff was in the training program a lot more frequently because, you know, I can push up, I can bench press. It's basically the same thing. Um, but so like an example that was not in the training program as frequently, but it was kind of an accessory exercise so they could get small exposures to it would be like a leg tuck. So a leg tuck is basically like you're holding a pull-up bar in the air and then you have to bring your knees up to your elbows and that counts as one. And if you don't get it all the way up, then you don't get the point. So like that was, a, was an exercise I put in sort of as an accessory 
to a lot of my teams, um, kind of as a core quote unquote exercise. Um, I kind of put it in that block, I guess, just to get them to think about that as that. Um, but it wasn't like, all right, we're going to focus on this on this specific day. It was just something that we filtered in a little bit so they could practice uh, regularly so that when they got to the exam, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't, they would have some confidence doing the actual, the movement. Yeah, that's definitely different than the, your average college level NCAA soccer athletes. Uh, it, it adds a, a new element. Okay, so let's, I want to, I want to spin this in the direction of the Seattle Sounders, because eventually the, the end, not with the, I won't say the end of your story, but where you are currently is you are with the Seattle Sounders. You got yourself a nice gig going on there and you're developing the younger athletes in the hopes of getting them prepared to hopefully be recruited uh, up to the MLS level. What is that like? Yeah. So Seattle Sounders, um, you know, it's, it's similar in the sense of, you know, to sporting Kansas city in the sense of these athletes want to make it professionally um, with the focus is always to, to, to get these athletes to sign for the first team for Seattle Sounders. Now, my dream would be that every single one of my athletes does do that. But the reality of, of the situation is that very few of them will. Um, not, not simply because it's challenging to make it in professional sports, um, let alone major league soccer level, um, but also at the Seattle Sounders as one of the more successful clubs in major league soccer and all, really in all of North America. Um, it is a challenging proposition for any person to make it uh, to the first team. So for me, yes, it is important to develop them in the long term for that, but it's also important to keep in, in the big picture where the, a lot of these athletes may be going. A lot of these athletes will likely sign uh, scholarships for or letters of intent for, for college soccer. Um, and that's still a great piece of their development because um, you know, in an ideal world, if they do go to college soccer, they come back and, you know, maybe they sign a contract uh, through the draft with Seattle Sounders. That's, that's in an ideal world if they do go to college. And there was one athlete uh, actually recently like that, Dylan Tevez. Um, I believe he's with, with the Academy previously, played for University of Washington, um, was drafted with the Seattle Sounders. Um, but there's not, uh, but even if, you know, they, they don't sign for the Sounders, it's important also still to keep in mind that we're still in the business of developing long athletes in the long term so that they can be successful wherever they go. Um, whether that's maybe for another club, whether it's just for college soccer. Uh, so for me, the, the emphasis is still a sort of teaching environment. Um, so one, what, a big part of this development is movement quality. So whether that's on the field or even off the field, uh, whether that's in the weight room. So uh, if they step into a weight room, a lot of these, a lot of the, these athletes, especially if they're in the U15s, this is their first time ever stepping into a weight room. And, uh, you know, I meet a 14 year old kid. I don't know whether he's going to sign for the Seattle Sounders first team, or if he's going to just stop playing soccer after college and just go into a gym and, you know, do whatever he needs to, or if he, you know, when he steps foot into a collegiate weight room, can he be confident, um, uh, with a collegiate strength conditioning coach, uh, knowing what he, what he needs to do when a collegiate strength conditioning coach teaches him. So I think for this 14 year old kid, it's my job to teach him, okay, what are the basics of effective and appropriate lifting? How can we uh, do this throughout the week? And why do I plan things the way I plan them? So that if for some reason you ever have to do this on your own after college or after, you know, 
whatever situation, uh, you know the basics and, and you have an understanding of it. Um, and then that's also outside of the weight room. You know, how can I, you know, in terms of stuff outside of the weight room on the field, in terms of movement development, a lot of that may be um, just general athletic development. So how to change direction, how to turn your hips, how to accelerate, how to sprint at top speed, all those kinds of things. One, obviously all those things are going to be effective in helping to develop a soccer player, but also it's just general athletic development, right? So, um, so again, like I said, if I'm not with a ball, it's not specific to soccer. Yeah, um, now you've got different age levels, obviously, and, and the way in which it's it's bracketed or separated is is typically with chronological chronological age, where you've got U14, U16, U18, and the like. Um, some clubs obviously are going to have more groups, and others may have less. But the question here is, you've got an athlete that has a physical maturity level beyond their chronological age, or also mental maturity. And then you've got maybe other athletes that are not physically mature as their chronological age, or for that matter, mentally mature. How does that come into play? Do you, do you tend to like, as we call it in like coaching, do you play up or do you bring them down or do you just keep them in that age bracket and then have to address those, those elements within the group that they're currently in? Yeah. Does that make sense? That's a fantastic, yeah, that makes complete sense. Great question. And it's actually something I currently am dealing with since I basically yeah. kind of started here two months ago. Um, so in terms of physical maturity, so as you said, there are some athletes that, you know, they may be 14 years chrono chronologically, but biologically they may be quote unquote 16 years because they've hit their growth spurt early. Yeah. Um, in those situations, so as I'm starting out, you know, this first two months, for me, it's just establishing a standard for everything that we do. Now, like I said, you know, you can individualize certain things for certain people as I did, you know, at previous organizations. Uh, so, you know, maybe at, at West Point, we may have had five different lifts for one team going on at the same time, but that's only because uh, the first four-ish months I had established, okay, these are the main emphasis points when we're squatting, when we're lunging, when we're doing a push-up, when we're sprinting. And it may look different for different people, but these are the small things to think about when you do them. This is that sort of phase for me right now here at the Seattle Sounders. So, you know, this is a basic way everyone should look like when they're squatting. Now, obviously some people may toe out a little bit. Some people may have their feet completely straight. Some people may hit this depth. Some people may hit that depth and we'll make those adjustments as we go. But overall, this is the archetype archetype for, for what an, a certain movement or certain types of movements should look like. And I'm establishing that now. Now, as I get to know these athletes more individually, I can say, okay, we're going to change this for this person. And we're going to change this for this person. In terms of their biological maturity, um, we do uh, PHV measurements. So we measure height, weight, and then basically we can get an idea of when they might hit their growth spurt. And theoretically, what their sort of bandwidth in terms of how tall they could be um, or how tall they may not be, you know, whatever that bandwidth is. Um, so we measured that and see, okay, where are, at what point is a person hitting their peak height velocity or quote unquote their growth spurt? And if they are getting closer to that, uh, it's a little bit more about managing sort of um, their overall workload. So whether that's in the weight room or even on the field, we can measure workload with our GPS for all of our players. 
So it's kind of just talking to the coaches um, and, you know, letting them know, Hey, like, just so you know, this player is kind of in that phase of his, his development where we need to be a little bit more careful um, in terms of how much we throw at him. So maybe, you know, for certain athletes, we may say, look, we're going to modify certain things, whether it's on the field or in the weight room in terms of giving them maybe a day off, or maybe, you know, if a certain athlete has two training sessions because they may train with multiple teams, maybe we only train him on one training session so we can make sure that he's not doing too much. Um, and so kind of, you know, taking it player by player and sort of uh, month by month and saying, okay, this is what we need to do for this player so they can maximize the development in the long term. Yeah, that sounds like, like you say, long-term athletic development, LTAD. We're hearing that, oh, for the last decade or so, really being pushed. And it's, it's great because that means that we're actually not just uh, having this treadmill or an assembly line effect for uh, whatever the age is. This is what we're throwing at them. My question there, Sudeep, is that if you've got somebody that is at their peak height velocity, they've hit that growth spurt, do you, do you start to tweak the program in a way which I think you already alluded to but in regards to like mobility when when the skeletal frame is growing at a greater rate than the muscle tissue is allowing we're going to have those long lanky kind of inflexible athletes is that when you start to throw in mobility are there times in this in this peak velocity curve that you're looking at okay this is the opportunity for coordination and balance this is the time for fundamental strength this is the time for for coordination, mobility, whatever. Is, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, um, kind of. Uh, what you kind of alluded to in the sense of, you know, this is a certain window of opportunity for this uh, quality and et cetera, et cetera. I think that's talked about in a lot of sort of long-term athletic development, uh, I guess, graphs or like infographs and stuff like that. Yeah. But to be quite honest, for me, you know, some of the qualities that you mentioned are things, and I think you you would agree with me on this, are, are things that basically any training program can address, uh, whether that's for 15 to 18 year old athletes or 50 to 80 year old athletes, right? You know, mobility, coordination, um, those types of things are things that anybody can work on. Um, and maybe, maybe not everybody needs to improve necessarily, but have regular exposures to so they can maintain. So, um, you know, doing and teaching them, for example, uh, effective methods of soft tissue, whether that's trigger point, um, foam rolling, that type of stuff, you know, exposures to that, that can be done, whether that's, you know, a 15 year old athlete or a 50 year old athlete, like I said, or a professional athlete or a college athlete. Um, and it's something that they're going to do at some point anyway. So whether or not I know in strength conditioning and PT and all these other worlds, people say whether it's effective or not, well, frankly speaking, whether it is effective or not, people are going to do it. So you might as well teach them effective ways to do it. Um, so that's, that's kind of the way I think of that. And in terms of coordination, um, you know, coordination is essentially just like, you know, executing certain movement patterns and having effective timing to be able to do so, whether that's in a sporting environment or outside of it, um, in a sporting environment is simply just a little bit more chaotic because you don't really know whether an opponent is going to do something else or not. And in a non-sporting environment, it's a lot less chaotic. So you can teach them certain patterns there. But at the end of the day, um, a hip hinge is a hip hinge, whether you're a 15-year-old athlete or a 25-year-old athlete. Um, and Well, there goes my next – that's my next question. Sorry to interrupt, but um, you right. just mentioned 15 and 25. You've had experience with, with age ranges, and so I'm wondering about your coaching style. Like at West Point, you, 
you started to develop a certain style of coaching. Uh, and I'm, I'm reminded of Nick Winkleman, who I had on a, a couple months ago. He wrote The Art of Coaching. And his thing was, was coming up with analogies. And you mentioned it earlier, like when people have a different idea of when you say tighten up your core, some people won't even know what that means. Others will do it improperly. So you've got to create imagery and, and analogies and so on. I, I'm just wondering, is, is that your approach to coaching, especially with the youth? Like how do you coach something that is new to a lot of athletes and it's going to be with them for a long time? You're laying the bedrock, the fundamental foundation for strength and conditioning if they continue on for, for the rest of their life. Uh, not to put that too much emphasis, like a, a big weight on your shoulder, but how do you do that? For sure. Um, and I think uh, some of the way I coach goes directly back to my internship at CSP. So I think there's a few things that I, basic tools that I use. So one, obviously you can explain the exercise to the athlete. That's a very common way that a lot of people do it. And so, for some people, it may actually work. Uh, for people who have no experience with exercise, it, generally speaking, doesn't. So the first thing I'll turn to is sort of demonstration. So I'll let's say I'm teaching a dumbbell goblet squat. Um, I will literally just pick up a dumbbell and have the other athlete pick up a dumbbell. And I say, do what I do as I do it. So I hold the dumbbell in the goblet position. I squat. And then they squat. And, that, and then I stand up. And then they stand up. And then I say literally nothing else. And then usually it works. And if it doesn't work directly the first time, they'll at least have some sort of like, uh, it may not look exactly like I want it to look, but it at least looks kind of like a squat. Like for example, I'm they're at least bending their hips and they're bending their knees. Now, whether they're bending their hips and their knees more or less is you know up for whether it's debate or whether it's, you know they should or shouldn't do one more than the other. So let's just say they're doing the squat and they bend their hips too much. So I'll say, bend your knees more. And then I just make it very simple. Um, now for other movements that may be more co complicated than that, let's say um, a good example is when I first uh, learned how to teach a uh, rotational med ball scoop toss at Cressy Sports Performance. That is not like a squat in, or a hip hinge or it's not a single joint movement uh, necessarily that's very uh, straightforward to teach. Um, but when I first learned to teach it, uh, the cue that I, or the tip that I was given is let's relate it to something that the athletes know when you're coming into a baseball facility, pretty much every athlete will know how to hit a baseball like at bat. Um, so what I would do generally speaking is I would have them set up next to a wall, right? Have them have, do a med ball or have a med ball in their hands. I'd show them the exercise and have them do it. And if they don't do it right, the first four to six times, I would say, okay, stop what you're doing, put the medicine ball down at your feet. And all I want you to do is show me your batting stance. And they'd, at first, some of them would be like, what do you mean? I'd be like, no, literally pretend you're on a baseball field and show me how you would hold a bat and wind up to hit a home run. And they would do that. And then I would say, do that two more times, do it again. And then I would say, okay, pick the medicine ball up and do the exact same thing. And generally like 99% of the time, it clears up perfectly. Um, and if there's the 1% of the time that it doesn't, then we have to find other ways, whether that's using external cues, um, you know, using the environment to, for example, I could say, you know, hips face the wall completely, or pretend there's headlights, uh, on the front of your hips, that type of thing. And those must face the wall. Um, but generally speaking, just relating something to what an athlete already knows 
um, or maybe not even knows, but can picture in their mind using their imagination, uh, that has worked out very, very well. Um, whether that's, you know, in previous settings with collegiate athletes, with younger athletes here, um, I think the biggest thing, sometimes analogies are great, but sometimes athletes, whether if you're just throwing a bunch of words at them, it's the same thing as explaining an exercise very technically, even if is, if it's an analogy, because the one thing to think about is, again, these are 14, 15 year old athletes that are in a weight room for the first time or the first few times. And frankly speaking, they're just scared because they don't really know what's going on because this is not an environment that they are comfortable in. And so to get them to be comfortable, you have to provide them the least amount of stimulus so they can slowly grade up how comfortable they can become. So sometimes I am going to provide a very basic single joint cue, bend your knees, because that's three words and that's all they have to think about. They don't have to think about belt buckle up to nose or, you know, tightening the core or, you know, vertical force production. All those are huge words for a 14 to 15 year old athlete when all they want to do is get home and, you know, relax after a long day of training in a professional soccer environment. So, you know, sometimes you just need to keep it as simple as possible and not complicated for, uh, for some of these athletes. Okay. We're, these are great. I love this conversation. I really appreciate all of the things that you've offered to, to myself as well as the listening audience. I, and I'll say it over and over again. This is a very selfish project on my part with this podcast because I learned so much from the guests that I have on and this is no exception. So, but I'm curious to be, when it comes to your goal, not, I'm not talking like your end goal, but the direction that you're going, obviously you're following your heart, you're following your passion from, from the years that you, at 11 years old, watching the World Cup, and here you are working for the Seattle Sounders, and where, where do you want to go with this? And now, granted, I know you're, you've only been there for a couple of months, and, and I'm not, uh, if, if Brandon Moran, who's the, the head strength conditioning, you know, performance director at the Sounders is listening to this, I'm not trying to get you to have his job, but you know, if that happens, yeah, where, where do you want to go? What, what, what are your big, hairy, audacious goals with your career? Uh, yeah, that's a question that I've been asked by a lot of people in the last, I guess, two-ish years. Um, uh-huh. And if you had asked me maybe two years ago, I might, I might have said, I want to be a performance director at a major league soccer club. Um, and I think in sort of tangible goals, I guess that is, you know, one of the potential goals that I could be reaching towards. But um, again, to be quite frank with this, I, I don't really know. Um, and I think not knowing what I want to do and just focusing on the next step, it has been the best decision for me in terms of where I've ended up. Um, you know, like I, like I said, I've been really lucky to learn from basically some of the best people in the world. And that was my original goal. Um, I remember when I was in high school, I, you know, I was a decent soccer player. I was one of the better players in the, in the County. I wasn't great in terms of the overall scope of soccer in the United States, but I was good in my area. And so I wanted to play college soccer. I remember one day, uh, my, I, our high school team wasn't the best, um, love the guys, but they weren't the greatest team. And I remember one day we, we basically lost like nine, one to the best team in the area. And I was like, man, like how in the world am I going to make anything of myself because you know you're a high school kid you don't really 
have perspective back then. If I'm going to lose 9-1 to these guys. And so I, I remember thinking to myself, I don't really know what I'm going to do in the long run. I didn't know what I wanted to do at the time. Didn't really have any direction in terms of what I, what I really wanted to do. I was decent in school. Like, uh, so like I knew I would, you know, eventually find a way to get to college. Like that wasn't the challenge for me. It was more of just like, okay, what do I actually want to do with my life? And I thought, I don't really know what I want to do, but I do know this is whatever I do, I want to surround myself with the best people in the world. And I'll say that I think that goal, I think, has been achieved. I, my goal has always been to never be the smartest person in the room. And at Florida, I was never that. At Cressy, I was definitely never that. At the NSCA, I wasn't that. At Sporting Kansas City, wasn't that. And that, and here at Seattle Sounders, I definitely am not that with, obviously, Brandon. But then with our first team, we've got uh, Megan Young, Adam Santafanti, um, Sean Muldoon, like, these guys are like really, really intelligent people um, and great human beings. And I think if I continue to do that, hopefully, you know, hopefully I am never the smartest person in the room so that I can continue to grow. Uh, whether that's as a performance director in an MLS club, or even if that's, again, going back to PT school, it's just, you know, what is the next step is just doing the best that I can wherever I am and then continue to grow and learn from the people that I'm with. So I know that's not the answer that, Oh. Some people want to hear because they want to hear like, yeah, he wants to work for the national team or he wants to work in the English Premier League. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'll get that opportunity one day. Um, but whether I do or not uh, is not necessarily the end goal. It's just to continue to get better at whatever I'm doing. And that is the uh, true definition of humility there to be teachable. So I really appreciate that answer. Truly. Um, I could learn a lot from it myself. So I, I would wish you really a great season, but I'm a Quakes fan and I'm just going to, I would have a hard time doing that, man. Cause I, I go over to, well, it used to be a via stadium, but now it's PayPal, whatever it is. It's, yeah. it's one of the best MLS stadiums in the country. And uh, we have a great time over there, but I will, I'll, I'll try and rise above. I'm going to wish you a really good season. And I really appreciate yeah. your time. If do, are you an Instagram person? Do you have followers? If, how can people find out about your journey? Uh, yeah. So Instagram, what is my username? It's S B A G Y seven. Uh, that's kind of more of a personal account. Um, but you can still follow me if you want to, uh, generally in terms of content, I just repost a lot of a lot smarter people than I am uh, on my story. So if you want access to uh, smart tips from Eric Cressy and all these other people, you can always go through my story account. Um, but yeah, that's probably the best way um, to, to reach out. Yeah. Right on. Well, I really appreciate your time today and uh, can't thank you enough. For sure. It was great talking to you. Well, that's another episode of the Zealous Podcast. Thanks for listening. I just want to thank Sudeep for coming on. And man, for a young professional, he is sure is an eloquent speaker. And even though he's being humble, he sure knows his stuff. Be sure to follow us on Instagram again, at Rocky underscore Snyder. Subscribe, tell some friends, you know, that keeps on growing. And it's for listeners like you that keep spreading the word. So thank you, and we'll see you next week.